Hi, welcome to JobsCast. This is your host, Pat Bubble. My guest on today's episode is Ashley Brooks. My conversation with Ashley focuses mainly on her experiences as a bus driver in Baltimore and as a plater at Paul Corporation. We also discuss Ashley's time in prison, the circumstances that led to it, and what she has learned from her life experiences thus far. I met Ashley at the beginning of last year through the tutoring platform WiseAnt. Ashley reached out to me because she wanted to improve her command of written and spoken English, and in the process of that engagement, we got to know each other and became friends. If there's anyone who could claim to have a valid excuse for regarding the world with pessimism, it would be Ashley. In spite of that, Ashley is one of the most positive, upbeat, and astoundingly resilient people I've ever met. Ashley and I are around the same age, and we're both very fortunate to currently be in committed relationships and to be homeowners. Not that those are always essential ingredients for a good or meaningful life. I can think of plenty of people who have neither and are doing just fine. But nevertheless, these are considered signs of a, of a good life. And our roads leading to our relative security and stability couldn't have been more different. We grew up only a few hundred miles away from each other, Ashley in Baltimore, Maryland, and me near the Scranton area of Pennsylvania. But beyond sharing a coast, our paths couldn't have been more dissimilar. The most notable differences being that Ashley grew up without two stable parents and spent her late teens and half of her 20s in prison. After learning Ashley's story and understanding that it's emblematic of a common narrative in America, I felt the desire to share my critical thoughts on the carceral system at length. However, ultimately, I think what Ashley has to say here from the inside is worth more weight than my pseudo-punditry from the outside. That said, I will just say that it's very clear to me that the years Ashley spent in prison not only unnecessarily deprived Ashley of her freedom and a large swath of her youth, she just didn't need to learn the lessons she did in such a hard way, but also represent a major loss for the wider world. It's so obvious that Ashley's presence is a boon wherever she goes, and it just makes one want her to be able to go to more places and spread her talent and energy. Anyway, I hope you find Ashley's thoughts on her life interesting, enjoyable, and educational, and as always, please feel free to email me with thoughts or questions about the show. My email address is pat.bubul at gmail.com. And if you think someone you know might benefit from hearing this conversation, it'd mean a lot to me if you shared it with them. Finally, as an aperitif before the conversation, and given that this show is very much concerned with the acquisition of life lessons, I want to share with you a quote from Scott Barry Kaufman, a cognitive scientist and author of the recent book Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization which I haven't read yet, but I'm very intrigued. Scott says, you need to acquire the skills that allow you to resist distractions against your higher order goals and the flexibility to change course when your actions are no longer serving your higher order goals. I now present you my conversation with Ashley Brooks. Ashley, welcome to JobsCast. Good morning. So glad you're here. So Ashley, what is your current job? My current job right now, I'm, I'm an MTA bus driver. I live in Baltimore, Maryland. Is that where you're from originally? Yes. I'm guessing each day is quite different depending on the passengers and the route, but give us a taste of what being a bus driver is like. Tell us some stories. Uh, being a bus driver, you interact with 
all different types of um, individuals. It depends on what day of the month it is, if it's in the beginning of the month, the end of the month. It also tell uh, what route you're on. Certain routes are busier than others, especially during game time. So it, it's pretty hectic at certain days of the week. By game time, you mean Orioles games, Ravens games? Uh, yes, certainly Ravens games. Ravens games take over. <laughs> <laughs> During a Raven game, a lot of traffic stops. So they try to direct traffic because there's so many um, people. They try to direct traffic. Then you have your regular customers plus the Raven customers. So you got to treat the Raven customers with a little bit more respect. <laughs> Because when they first, they come first before the regular customers. Because they got, we got to get them to the game. And so, what is the atmosphere on the bus? Is it like a big party? Oh my God, it's a big party! Don't let the Ravens win. It goes crazy, <laughs> <laughs> it goes crazy. before they win. During halftime, um, yeah, it's just like a big party on there. It's a really big party. That then, must make it stressful for you, given that you're the chaperone to this party. You're you're the person in charge. So how do you feel when everyone's partying? I don't put my main focus on that. My my focus is get them to and from their destination safe. So I already know, I already suspect that when they get on the bus, they're gonna be loud, they're gonna be rowdy. So I block them out. I just make sure they're not doing anything crazy as far as starting an argument, beginning to fight each other. But other than that, I just keep my eyes on the road, just get them to A to B C because they just having fun. Do you feel actually in Baltimore, is there a sort of culture of hi, say hello? When people get on the bus, are they friendly to you? Do they say good morning, good evening, good afternoon? It's like a 50-50 there. 50-50, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. I, I would love to know. I need to do more research and see what other bus drivers in other cities think. Uh, I'm curious which cities have the most friendly greetings from passengers and which don't. But yeah, 50-50 seems pretty good. Yeah, you, it's just like you get more respect during the morning. Uh, at the 12 o'clock, you don't get a lot of respect. They just get oh, up. interesting. Yeah, it just I guess it's how when they wake up in the morning, <laughs> you have some say good morning, thank you, I appreciate you. Others, they just look at you, think that, oh, you owe them everything. You're supposed to stop where they want you to stop. They, that's what makes it really difficult right there. But it's about a 50-50. You have your respectful ones and your non-respectful ones. <laughs> so the non-respectful ones, I just don't even pay no mind. The ones that speak, I speak to them and just leave it as that. Do you ever have passengers who want to sit in the front close to you and talk to you during the whole drive? Oh, Gosh, yes, I do. <laughs> and how do you feel about those passengers? I mean, it's a blessing. And at the same time, it's like, I don't want to be bothered, but I have to be bothered because I just want to focus on driving. But some individuals come on your bus, they be dealing with some issues. Um, and they just start venting. They just start venting. And I just listen. Sometimes they just need a person just an ear. Sometimes I give them that ear, and I just help them the best way I can. That's all I can do. I, sometimes do I like it? No, but that's my job. Because I'm a nice person, I already know they're going through something. I'm just there for them and I can help them any type of way. But no, not all the time. I would like to just keep driving, just stay focused. <laughs> it was up to me. Yeah, I think in many cases, jobs have roles within roles. One might think of the bus driver on paper uh, as a person who operates a vehicle and gets passengers from point A to B. But in addition to that, technical component of your job it is of course very social and you're 
like uh, a therapist almost at times, being that kind of listening ear, that calming presence. Yeah. So tell me about uh, any kind of memorably bad or very difficult days on the job. Oh, oh, I have a lot of them. When some patrons come on the bus intoxicated, that's the hardest. That's mainly during the weekend, Friday and Saturday. So this is an every week situation. They come on the bus intoxicated. They want to fuss. They want to curse. It is loud and rawly. It is. And then with that, you really can't do anything. You let them be their stuff until they get off. Unless they put someone else in harm's, that's when you really, I have to stop the coach and I ask them, can they get off? Other than that, only thing we can do is sit there and drive until they get off. And that's the hard part because you just, we're so disrespectful. So we get a lot of that on Fridays and Saturdays. <laughs> Ashley, during your training, are you advised to stop if there are unruly passengers or if you don't feel safe or if you don't feel that the coach is safe? I would imagine that you probably really don't want to stop because it would disrupt the schedule and arrival and departure times for perhaps the rest of the day. At the same time, I would imagine there are events that require stopping. So how are you trained in that regard, and how do you make judgment calls in specific moments? Okay, like in specific moments, um, I can speak on, it was one moment um, I had a guy, and he was very rude, disrespectful, he was intoxicated. So he get, he gets on my bus, uh, he having all these altercations, fussing, I said, okay. When he started threatening me, I put everything at home. I called my my supervisor. Not to know the situation that was going on, basically he's threatening my life. So everything just stopped. The bus stopped running. Um, the police officers came because now he's threatening me. Right. If he was just on the bus, just talking loud and not engaging with me or threatening me, I'll probably just keep riding until he gets off. Because I mean, he just he just an intoxicated. He just want attention. So I'll just let him just do whatever he's doing, long as he's not. Um, Touching anybody, hitting anybody, we're okay. But long, when he once he put his hands on another person, another individual, I had to stop, call the police. They'll come and escort him off and then arrest them. Yeah, it's interesting how when you're in cities, there is such exposure to sights and sounds, people talking at you, yelling at you, asking you mm -hmm. things, doing all kinds of things. But generally that physical barrier is preserved where you're entitled to keep your physical space completely private but yeah i guess that makes sense once that boundary is crossed you need to intervene any really great days uh, a great day on the job is like uh, a great day on the job is when you don't have a lot of passengers <laughs> <laughs> the route that you have is just is no traffic um, low passengers who might get about one or two, nothing overload, um, and it's just peaceful. Yeah. So the less passengers you have, the great day you have. Got it. I think that's probably true for the passengers as well. <laughs> I remember being on a bus a couple of years ago from New York to Boston on New Year's Eve, uh -huh. and I was the only person on the bus, and the bus driver and I both seemed so happy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the less you have, less passengers the more peaceful and calm it is. Yeah. So let's back up a bit in your history. How did you become a bus driver? Oh, my, the bus driving life found me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reason why I said that, um, 
I was in CDL school, getting my um, CDL's A's. What is CDL? A CDL, um, my truck driver's license. I see. So I was in school for that. And for some reason, my spirit just told me, this this apply for MTA, um, a bus driver. I didn't want to. I was like, uh, I was just doing it because I know I needed a job. So I said, okay. So I applied for it. And I got accepted. I said, well, they said, um, come in and take a test. I said, oh, man, I didn't want to do that. So I go and take the test, and I pass the test. I don't know how, through the grace of God, I passed the test. <laughs> so when I passed the test, I had to come in for another test. So that test didn't go too well because they asked a lot of questions that I didn't know. I didn't understand. So I, I tried to um, answer to the best of my ability. When that happened, I like, oh, my gosh, I flunked. I thought it was just done and it was over with. And a week later, I have got a, I received a letter saying, "Congratulations, welcome to MTA. Start June the 16th." I was so shocked. <laughs> and that was how long ago? That was two years ago. No, three years. Three years. Yes, this is my third year. And what was it like driving through the pandemic? Oh, my sh- God. the pandemic. I should say, what has it been like driving through the pandemic it's, since it's ongoing? During the pandemic time. When it first um, began, it was really scary. It was so scary, especially for us, because we was actually hands-on with individuals. We were so, like, close contact, just like nurses are with individuals who had COVID. So it was really scary for me. It wasn't a good time, even though it wasn't that many people outside, but you still had individuals that was driving the bus. You had more individuals that were driving the bus because the bus was free for about three months. So more people was getting on the bus. And it the bus situation wasn't always sanitized like I supposed to. And that was the scary moment. We had to do that for ourselves. Well, it, it got better from when it first began. They cleaned the buses frequently. As soon as you get off the bus, they clean it. Then we clean it ourselves as we get on. Um, everybody keep a six feet distance. Um, I don't drive, but everybody wears a mask. They still have to wear a mask to this day on the MTA. So now it got a little at ease, more control. At first at first it wasn't. Were there any passenger limitations? Uh-huh, yes. And we couldn't fill the bus up as a standing load. Once all the seats, like every other seat get filled up, we couldn't pick no more passengers up. And I'm still like that to this day. Um I'm if I start getting a standing load, like two or three people start standing on my bus because there's no more seats. I stopped picking up people, and I just um, drop everyone off until, I mean, to more people get off the bus, then I add more on. But if it's a crowd load, I will not, I will not stop. <laughs> Would you say that people's behavior was respectful of the CDC guidelines, or did you often have to tell people to put their mask on or keep their distance from people? They are not... <laughs> They're not paying attention to the rules. I say about 70% do, the other 30% don't. It's like we can't enforce it because it started an altercation between me and the patron. So if I tell the patron, you have to wear a mask before you come on this bus, they'll start an argument. And we cannot have an argument with a patron. Allow them still on the bus. That's the crazy part because we don't want no altercation to happen. Well, all that we can do is enforce it and it's up to them to wear it if not. The wear it if they don't want to wear it. But about 70% wear their bags. The other 30%, they just do what they want. Actually, in the three years you've been driving for the MTA, how often has your route changed and how often does your schedule change? 
Well, it's like we have certain dates, certain months that we pick. Um, so for this pick is a fall pick. So we pick a uh, pick a route for the fall, and we have that for six months. Then we have our spring pick. We spring we we, uh, we pick a route for the spring, and that's for three months. And then we have our summer's pick, and that's for three months as well. So we got we got the fall, spring, and summer. And that's how we go each season. We pick a different route. Are these picks like lottery style? The seniors get the first pick. I came in three years ago. I'm still at the bottom. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Yeah, it's it just the seniors, they, they are not retiring. <laughs> I feel like in a lot of other jobs, three years into it, you might be kind of middle of the pack in terms of seniority. But I guess there's a high retention rate for city jobs. So it's um they get the first pick. So we had to we just picked last week. So the pick was from Monday through Friday. So whatever seniority you had, that's what day you pick. My day was on Friday, the last day. <laughs> so, so what did you get stuck with? I got stuck with the grace of God. I got stuck with the same route that I have now. I have um the route, it's a twenty-eight route that goes to Sinclair, um, Sinclair Road, Moravia, all the way to Rogers Station. And that's from like 4 to 1130 at night. 4 p.m. to 1130 p.m. So I know that you had a, another job until pretty recently. Tell us about the other job you had and how you were balancing that job with your MTA job. Oh, man, that was so much. <laughs> oh, I was working as a machine operator, mostly hands-on. We was making filters for essential workers, for hospitals, for cars, anything that needed a filter, we were supplying it. I was working there and working MTA. I don't know how I did it, but once again, through the grace of God, I was able to do it. And this was an 80-hour workload, roughly. For Paul Corporation, that's what I was working for, for the mechanical work. It was about 50, 50 or 60 hours, because I was doing more overtime there. And MTA, I would just do the completely 40 hours. So we're talking about 90 or 100 hours per week. Per week, yes. For about almost a year, yes. For listeners who haven't already done the mental math, there are 168 <laughs> hours in a week. Uh, so if you're working 100 of them, that leaves uh, not many hours left. And mm -hmm. if you then budget for sleep time, you're really not going to have much free time at all. What effect did it have on you? Oh uh, yeah, so when um when I, when I was working both jobs, I always was I was tired a lot because I was only getting about two or three hours of sleep. I was tired. Uh, my brain it wasn't fully functioning <laughs> because I was always tired. Then like on my off days for MTA, I would probably get a little bit more rest, and that would keep me going during the week. Now I just started getting sick, so I know that caused an impact. Um, that's why I actually just left that job because I started having more um, health issues because I wasn't getting enough rest and just my body was really off. It started messing up. Like I couldn't really distinguish night and day. Even though it was daytime, even though it was nighttime, I still just couldn't remember that the time was messing me up because I was working both jobs. Just oh, wow. Because, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't feeling right. It wasn't, I'm like, what day it is? I didn't never know what day it was. Never knew what time it was. It just it threw everything off. So it, it really it really messed me up while I was working both jobs. But at the same time, I had to do what I had to do. 
<laughs> get what I needed to get, and that was my house. So you had to sacrifice sometimes. Well, I, don't, I, I wouldn't sacrifice like that anymore. Um, I would do it much smarter. I would do more head work than more body work. What I mean by that, I will. I want to put so much energy. I want to work. I want to work myself to death like I did. I would do one job and do something else that it don't cost a lot of work. I can still make the same amount of money, but with a, with a less time. Did you ever have a day off? Um, no, because I probably have a day off with MTA, but I still had to go to work for Paul Corporation. So I still had to go to work, but I probably only had to work one job. Even Christmas, New Year's, you worked those days? Yes, I never, I've always worked on holidays. Always worked on holidays. Now, you had a vacation not too long ago. Yes, uh, I forced a vacation. You <laughs> <laughs> think you deserved a vacation more than 99% of people in America, if not the world. How did you feel to take a break? Man, oh my gosh, I, I felt wonderful. I did not want to come back. <laughs> I went to Miami for the first time, and when I say it was amazing, wonderful, just not to get up and go, <laughs> oh my God, that was, there was a lot of pressure, a lot of stress was off of me. It was weird, too, because I'm thinking I had to go to work, but I didn't have to go to work <laughs> because my body is so used to it. Yeah. But going to Miami for the first time, it was amazing. I did not want to come back. I needed a break. I needed to treat myself. That's another thing. I wasn't treating myself when I was working as hard. I was just, I kept pushing myself. Sometimes I was crashing because I was pushing myself too hard. And during that crash time, it's like I didn't want to, like I didn't even know who I was because I was working so hard and putting so much pressure on myself. So don't ever work two jobs, two full-time jobs. <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to do that. I will definitely take your advice. <laughs> the money is good for a second, but your body is more important than anything. Right. Tell us a little bit about the machine operator job. What were you doing there? At Paul Corporation, the position I was at, I was a pleader. There we was actually putting a ple- um, the filter together from scratch. We would um, assemble it. We would test it to make sure that it's functioning, how it's supposed to be functioning. And, and we would just send it out. So I was doing every piece. Like I had to actually assemble the whole thing but from scratch. I had to fix the machine when the machine goes down. I had to learn how to adjust certain speeds, the temperature as we sealed it. It's a lot of parts to it to become one. So it's about six different parts that you have to go through at a fast pace. You had to assemble 150 filters a day. So you have to, each hour, you got to do about 20 filters an hour. But each filter is not the same. One filter get a longer test. Uh, one filter get a short test. One don't even get tested at all. That means that you know there is no holes in the membrane for the material. So that's the only reason why I get tested. So make sure the material don't have no holes and everything is working properly. So it's about seven different components to creating one single filter. What was the social dynamic like of that job? Oh, I really love it because of where I was at, the position I was at, it was a small environment. It was about six of us inside this membrane. Only six of us working. Each person had one cell doing something different. You had the person that's packing. You had the other person that's multi-highlighting. You had one that's floater. 
The dynamic there, it was wonderful. The people was nice. They uh, were so sweet. I really missed them. <laughs> I keep in contact with about two or three of them. They, it was a wonderful, wonderful, quiet, peaceful environment. <laughs> That's great. We talked a little bit about respect from passengers on the bus. What about in both of the jobs, leadership, management, people you were reporting to? Uh, to be honest, as any type of management, upper management, they need work as far as when communication. Every management um, upper level has they good and they bad. <laughs> so when it comes to Paul Corporation, as far as their management, I feel like they need to communicate more. They just assume that you're supposed to know, but you don't know, <laughs> especially if you're just coming in. So it's more communication that they have been getting better with that. When it comes to MTA, the good thing about MTA, they do communicate. But when it comes to upper management, you can't get in touch with them because they're never there. They're always gone. <laughs> they're in Miami. <laughs> you can't find them. Like, they communicate wonderful. But when you have to go to your um, superior, they're never there. They're always in a meeting. You can't never find them. Or the time you come back, you can't never get in contact with them. So it's hard to catch them. Paul, you can get in contact with them, but they don't communicate. So it's like <laughs> both of them, seesaw. Yeah, Kafka-esque. Yeah. <laughs> How did you become used to sleeping only two to three hours per night? I guess in a way the answer is you just became used to it. You had to. You felt the necessity to work very hard to save enough money to buy your home, which congratulations. It's great Thanks. news that you got a home recently. <laughs> but prior to these two jobs, were you also only sleeping two to three hours a night? When I was just working for MTA, first, before that, I always worked two jobs when I was um, younger in my teens. I always had two jobs. I, I had good work that day. So I know how my body, I know how my body is. I only need about five hours of sleep. So when I was working at MTA, I was still working the same amount of hours, but it was a little bit less. Like this week for MTA, for example, I worked 80 hours in one week. The only good thing is, is that my body is not drained. It's like I'm not working hard. I'm still getting some hours of sleep, like about six hours. So I'm still working 80 hours, but I got about six hours of sleep. But me, it's only work getting getting two hours of rest. My, I'm just, I have a good work ethic. My skill is just, I don't know, my body is just, I'm blessed and at the same time cursed. Because <laughs> I, when I know I need to sleep, I want to be up. And then it's sometimes it's a situation that you just have to adapt to. I had to adapt to that situation. Because I know what I had to do, so I had to adapt to that to get what I need to get. So it's more about that, really about adapting to the situation. I see. So let's back up further, Ashley. We keep going back in time. I know in your teens and 20s, you had some very difficult experiences, to say the least. Tell us about how you got through that part of your life, what happened that ultimately led to this good place you're in now, homeowner, working one job. Take us back in, into those times, teens and 20s. Okay, my teens, I was running with the wrong crowd. That's how it all starts. Uh, you run with the wrong crowd. Um, you see things that other people have and you want it. Basically, I was envying them. I was craving what they have. Um, and what did they have? 
They had flashy, they had money, they had good looking cars, good looking clothes. Like they were just stress free. Mm. <laughs> it was making it seem, but it was never like that. <laughs> After I got into the game, when I say the game, I was um, selling drugs. I hooked up with the wrong people. Um, they showed me this could be the lifestyle, and I went for it. During that time, I didn't have a lot of guidance, so they, they were my guidance. They were there when the times I needed things. Even though I had parents, I had my grandmother, it was so many of us. It was hard for her to look out for everyone. Because told she had about 10 kids there, my cousins, and my brothers and sisters. So I was the baby, so it was hard for her to keep up with me. So I got introduced with the wrong crowd around 16, at the age of 16. Mm. Um, start selling drugs. I dropped out of school. I just went on a different path. I just went on a total negative, destructive path. Yeah, I thought everything was going good. I had the money, I had the cars, flashy clothes, but I still wasn't happy. Until all of a sudden, I get arrested. I get incarcerated. Um, they gave me seven years. How did you actually get arrested, Ashley? What happened in that moment? I was on probation already. Um, I caught one felony charge, and then my last charge, I was with a friend at the wrong place at the wrong time. He did the transaction where they caught me. I have drugs on me in my possession. So that was an automatic lockup. So I was on parole, and I had two felony charges. So when I went to go see the commission, they gave me a no bail because I was facing, I had basically a three-time loser. Because I had two open charges on, on probation, and you can't do that, especially if it was felonies. They said, you have a no bail. That meant I cannot get out until my case was finished. It took two years to go through the process before I actually caught my time for my sentence. And during that time, you were incarcerated? Yes. I, um, my first year, I was um, incarcerated. My second year, I was still incarcerated. But I was able to go on home monitor. That's when you got a box or your arm. They, they basically they track it everywhere, but you'd be able to come home. So I'm home. I'm in the house all day serving this time. Say serving the, um, the time before I get sentenced. Basically not serving. I'm waiting time before I get sentenced. And that first year, just to clarify, that first year that you were incarcerated waiting for your sentence, mm-hmm. that time doesn't count toward serving the... Penalty? No, it still counted. They counted everything. Got it. Okay. It counted the day I got locked up on November 11th in 2008. <laughs> I remember everything. Uh, so, yes, whatever, the first day I got locked up, the last time I got locked up, they counted it all the way through. So, I finally got sentenced. They gave me seven years. During that two-year waiting time going back and forth to court, they kept offering me 17 years because wow. I had felonies plus I was on probation for six years. I had a six year sentence for the um probation. So they was offering me seventeen. So with the lawyer process, he was able to get everything consolidated and they consolidated everything. They threw away the probation. They just consolidated two charges and they gave me seven year sentence. Wow. Seven year sentence I had to um had to do a drug program and then they also backdated when I first began. So the two years counted towards the seven-year sentence. The only thing I had to do was almost a year and a half down the, um, I'm about to say, they call it the cut, <laughs> was the, um, the penitentiary. Okay. Yeah, so what we, what we call it is the cut. 
Okay. Um, so I did the seven years. I went to the drug program. And during my incarceration at, at the penitentiary, I started going to school there. Um, I started planning because I knew I was getting out. So I started planning what I'm going to do when I get out of prison. So when I got out, I got my GED. Uh, I started working two jobs. <laughs> this was at age 25, 26? About 25. Like, well, I was about 25, 26. I started work. I got my GED. It took me about seven tries to get my GED, but I got it. By the grace of God, I got it. Amazing. So, yes. Got my GED, started working two jobs. Then I started going to, I'm like, well, because I always uh, started doing CDLs, got my CDL A's. Uh, I went to apply for that, started going to school for that, for my truck driver's license. It took me two years because um, I had a lot of recent deaths in my family. So it like kind of hold me back, but I still pressed through. I kept going and I, and I had my CDLs, CDL A's for truck driving. Then when I got that, that's when the MTA job jumped right in my lap and I went with the MTA. And during the MTA, working hard here, build my work history up for more than two years, build my credit up. I focus on my credit. Began to save. That's why I added another job onto it because I was able to save to buy a house. And I kept pushing. It was hard, hard. <laughs> uh, I had a lot of hiccups. I kept pushing, even though I wanted to stop, even though I didn't want to do it no more, even though it wasn't even feeling like it's supposed to be mine. So I just kept working, saved up, and then I got the house. It took me about almost six tries of finding a house because the market that I was in. They was buying like crazy. And the process of buying a house was a little difficult. But at the end, I won. I had my house, four bedrooms, um, a backyard with a deck, basement, nice porch. So that's what hard work gives you. You just can't give up. <laughs> that's great. I'm really happy for you. Before we move on to another topic, what would you say, Ashley, you learned all in all from the experience of being incarcerated? First, it taught me the path that I was going on was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the path I was doing it was wrong. Um, that experience uh, opened my eyes up to what I want to do in life, arts and real estate. Also taught me how to toughen up with my family. Um, a lot of things happened when I was incarcerated with my family, but they did to me. It toughened me up. It made me a little stronger, and I don't allow them to get away from, with a lot of things. To this day, yeah, it just really just told me that I was going down the right, the wrong direction, the wrong direction. That was the main lesson in that. Tell us about some of the rocky transition moments out of the penitentiary. There was a time when you had no fixed address. Oh, uh, I went through a homeless stage. <laughs> the reason I chose to be homeless, because I didn't want to go back into the environment that I would have to live in. And it was a drug environment, because I knew that was one of my weaknesses, and I didn't want to sell drugs anymore. So I chose to be homeless. I slept in my car because I didn't want to go back to my grandmother, that atmosphere, because I wanted to do something different. Because I knew that path has let me do nothing but destruction. So I just wanted to do something different. So I had to take that risk. I had to take that 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 chance and leap of faith. And I slept in my car for a couple months, mainly during the winter. That wasn't a good experience. <laughs> I pray and hope that I would never have to experience that again. But just for me not to go down that path of 
destruction, I had to make that choice. It was hard, uh, but at the same time, it was a blessing. Every struggle is a blessing in it. There's always a life learned lesson. It taught me more about myself than I didn't even know. And it opened my eyes. And also just let me know that I was on the right track. You mentioned that there were 10 kids under your grandma's roof. <laughs> Did some of them end up falling into the drug game as well? Um, Every last one of them did. Every last one? Yes. Wow. Every last one of my cousins, if they didn't fall into the drug game, they got hooked on drugs. So I still say that's all part of the, the, the drug situation. So they didn't sell the product, they was using it to their self. And what are we talking about, crack cocaine? Of our generation, it was more as the alcohol, the um, ecstasy, they call it molly, pills, prescription pills. So that's when they was getting hooked on my generation, like my brothers and sisters. But my mother and father generation, it was more as crack, cocaine, fentanyl, it was all of that. I feel like, Ashley, when we read about urban African-American communities and anytime you hear about an individual life from the outside, I think many people are inclined to say, yeah, okay, we get it. Some of these places in the U.S. are bearing the legacy of discrimination, Jim Crow, slavery, systemic racism, systemic poverty, redlining, and all of that is relevant and undeniable. But some people will say, ultimately, individuals have a choice to get into the drug game or not, to use drugs or not. And it does seem that there's a degree of truth in that and that we do have agency to say yes or no. But in your particular case, which it sounds like it's not entirely unique, you can tell me, it sounds like maybe there are other families who have had similar experiences. But to the degree that your entire everyone you grew up with, you said everyone in your household, you said aunts and uncles, it, it completely dominated the culture you, you lived in to have these drugs be a part of your life. So to me, I mean, that just really dramatically underscores your strength and the difficulty it must have entailed for you to say no. And you went to jail. And then beyond that, you had to do this trial of basically removing yourself from your family. And I mean, that just sounds like an impossible choice. It sounds so, so, so difficult. It's it's almost like your choice was be with the family and, and stay in this risky, dangerous lifestyle, or go your own way completely independently. And as a suburban white guy who had all the benefits that you would think that entails, middle class house with no exposure to drugs, parents willing to pay for a college education, you know, and you and I are around the same age and had these very different trajectories, you in Baltimore, me in Pennsylvania. I guess maybe if you could speak a little bit more to what you observed in the broader community, if other families sort of had a, a kind of similar story to yours, as far as you know, and then also just if you could share some thoughts about that tremendous challenge of having to build your life as you've done independently. Yeah, so in the urban communities, the problem is, this is my opinion, um, especially for me actually living in it, the hardest thing with our generation as far as the urban community is, it's a family trait, it's a family burden because it's been passed down from generation to generation. So that's all we know. 
as far as getting high is is the change that we try to break off of us because it's from the other generation. So it's like they pass it down to us. So far as the out like they could the reason why I say that because that's all we saw. We thought that's what life was. As far as getting high, as far as selling drugs, that's what we saw in our community. So that's what we thought it was. That's just that's what's just life. But life is not just that. We only knew that because that's what we was taught. We can't learn anything else because in our community, that's all it was. Some people had reasons of selling drugs. Some people were just selling drugs to sell drugs. Um, other people was actually selling drugs to feed their family or feed themselves. For example, for myself, I was selling drugs to feed me because the food that my grandma had, my grandma had food, but she didn't have enough at times. And I was hungry. So I had to do what I had to do for us. Me being an independent woman, I had to feed myself. That's the two reasons why really people sell drugs. Some people just, just sell it just to sell it, just to, just to get a name and let everybody know. They do it for, they do it for show. The other people just actually try to eat and get out of the, that, that neighborhood. And that goes to the person. Everybody is different. You can be like how it was. Actually say, Yo, enough is enough and make that choice. Everybody have a choice. You can't blame it on the system. You can't blame it on the government. You can't blame it on anyone else but yourself. Because at the end of the day, you only have you. Every decision that you make is a consequence. If you know that selling drugs, the consequence is dying or going to jail, then you have to live with that. If you make the decision of, no, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to work two jobs or do what I have to do to buy a house, that's your decision. And you know what's the good consequence of coming. So it's good and bad. And it's up to that person. You can't blame it on any. And that's what the problem with the urban community. I love my community. But the problem is they blame it on the system. And it's the system, it don't give you the choice. You choose to be on Section 8. You choose to have low income. You choose to live in that community. You can't say, oh, no, because we don't have enough money. No, it's a choice. You choose to have all them kids. <laughs> it was your choice. And that's the their choices that they're making them. It give them a bumpy road, a bumpy, bumpy lifestyle. And they have to depend on the system. With the urban community, I just hope that this generation that's coming, that they make better choices, make better decisions so their choices can take them further than what we were. When you're in that type of community, you just really have to be mentally strong because you will come across a lot of things because it's just infected with drugs. When I say affected with drugs, because so many people taking drugs, they are not in their right state of mind. So they do a lot of things that you don't understand why they're doing it. They just do for anything of destruction, killing each other. So you'll witness a lot of things like that. You really have to be mentally strong. You have to know what you want in life and go after it. And it's really up to you. If you want to stay in that lifestyle, you just have to go with the consequences. You can't blame nobody else but once again, yourself. I just believe that everybody is not taking full responsibility of their own life and making a change. Is it easy? No, it's not easy at all. I'm still struggling in a lot of areas. But the point is that I made that choice to keep pushing, to keep trying to keep wanting to change, to become better. You can't give up. Once you give up, that's it. You need to keep failing to succeed. Like you need that failure. Failure is good. Failure is wonderful. Because <laughs> you can't find that failure in life. How you be able to grow? 
you got to learn how to grow. So failure teach you how to grow. And people mm. understand that. And they don't want to understand it because, oh, I failed. That's just it. No, that's a life learned lesson. So now I know not to do that again. So let me do another way and see whatever I can learn from that and then keep going forward. So it's really up to the person. And we just, as an urban community, got to make better choices for ourselves. That's it. What about your childhood, Ashley, prior to age 16? What do you remember from your younger childhood? What was it like? Oh, from my younger childhood, uh, my mother and father, once again, um, they were into drugs, really heavy. So at a certain age, my grandmother took me from them because they'll leave me in the house because they're so high intoxicated. They'll leave me in the house. My grandma always tell me the story. She said, yeah, I had to um, come up through the window to get you. <laughs> It wasn't funny then, but now it's just like, she's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you was all peed up and everything. Oh, because my mother and father, they left me in the house because they was intoxicated. Somebody heard me crying. As a kid, I experienced that. I used to experience my mother and father would go in and out my life. Um, they never was there. So I really, I don't really didn't have no direction from them. I didn't know how to do anything. My grandmother, she was there and I thank her. At first, I was mad at her until I start realizing, like, I'm really thankful for her because I could have ended up in a foster care. And I don't know what could have happened to me. It could have been worse than it was. Then she also kept a roof over my head. She made sure I was fed. She gave me everything that I needed, even though I won a lot of wants. But I'm glad that I experienced that because now I appreciate more. I appreciate so much more. I'm not chasing the wrong things in life. Um, she taught me a lot. So I lived with her. She took care of me until I started doing my own thing. Um, and at that, at, during that time, she was taking care of me. She was taking care of all my brothers and sisters. And that's about seven of us. Then she was taking care of other kids, my cousins. So it was all of us in one house. Was it fun? Yes, because it was all kids. You know, we was always <laughs> We was always getting in the, into everything. That's when I was always getting in trouble because they'll blame it on me because I was <laughs> <laughs> It was wonderful because at the same time, I had so many struggles as a kid. I also had fun. I will not take the fun that I had from doing that experience. Like, I had fun with my brothers and sisters. Even though I probably got beat up half of the time, got picked on, got beaten by my grandmother because of them, it was still fun. It was a wonderful experience, but a hard experience at the same time. So he took care of me. Mother and father was never there. They was there, like, want to come out of jail, want to be locked up. Like, they was going back and forth, back and forth. So everything that I actually learned is really by life experiences. Um, my grandmother kept me in church. I thank her so much for that. Um, she kept me in church. She didn't take nobody else to church, but she took me to church. <laughs> And I didn't like that at that time. <laughs> but every Sunday, she made sure I was at church with her. And I, I'm glad that she did keep me in church. So what my childhood was hard, but at the same time, it was a blessing because it taught me a valuable lesson in life. Love, appreciate what you have. Taught me how to work. It made me look at life different and not with all the struggles. And it just taught me really how to love and be patient with others. Mm, yeah. Last question, Ashley. If you had a genie in a bottle, uh, you have one wish, or you're a wizard, you have a magic wand, or you have a superpower to 
make one big change. It could be a change in terms of how people think, in terms of how people feel. It could be a systemic change. It could be a change to the law. It could be a change to work policies, anything. What, what is one big change that you would implement with this ability? To make people make better, smart decisions and choices in life. Mm, uh, I like it. People make smart, better choices in life. We wouldn't have all of this mess. We wouldn't have it. So it's up to us. Our start, that's the root. That's what I would change. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Ashley, it's been a real pleasure. I'm so glad to talk to you and I'm excited to share this conversation. Do you have any closing thoughts or remarks, anything at all you'd like to say before we wrap up the call? I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for the opportunity, Pat, uh, since you came in my life, since you, my tutor, you know, <laughs> I, I was doing tutoring, working two jobs. <laughs> you are a blessing. Um, you got me out my shell. You inspired me in so many ways. It's just you taught me how to love myself even more. And I just want to thank you. It's really about you. You are a blessing. And I'm grateful and pleased to have you in my life. Oh, thank you so much, Ashley. That really means a lot to me. <laughs> and it's reciprocated. I'm so happy we met each other and have been able to work together as well. Are you off to work now? Uh, yes. I got All right. Have a great day. Hope you don't have any drunk passengers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're welcome Ashley thank you again and we will talk soon okay, thanks take care Ashley bye bye